Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, arranger, guitarist from Argentina, Dynamic Miller. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Mr. Dominica, Dominic Miller, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's bad. I'm bad at names. <laughs> <laughs> Could you please give a short rundown about yourself and then we'll get into it? No, I'm just a guitar player. You know, I've been working with um, Sting for like 33 years. I've made a few solo albums. I'm, I'm a session player, of, you know, like, uh, you know, just a working musician, you know, just a nonstop. You're living the dream. That's all I can <laughs> say. <laughs> and hopefully I don't get rolled too bad on this interview, like what happened a few days ago. <laughs> no worries. Okay, but okay, sir. So I'm just curious. First thing, what do you think today's music is actually missing? Because I see the decline of session musicians. I see the decline of just pop music in general. I don't see as many different types of artists. Record labels seem to have less and less acts. I'm not so pessimistic about music. It's very easy to be pessimistic about it, like a lot of people are. I think it's very encouraging. I think there's a lot of good music out there at the moment. And there's more variety of music than there's probably ever been. And so I think it's encouraging. I'm not one of those naysayers who just saying, "Oh, it wasn't. It's not as good as it used to be." It's just different now, you know. There's the people do music differently, and they listen to music differently. And uh, I don't think there's anything missing. It's just a question of what do you want. You know, we have access to anything now. As a listener, you can listen to anything you want to listen to. So, uh, in, in any. In some ways, it's better now than it was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s because uh, we're not force-fed what the major labels are telling us to listen to. We can listen to anything now. So it's up to you. Your personality dictates what you want to listen to. So there's nothing missing. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, we can hear some pop music and go, oh, yeah, the, there's too much sampling or there's too much auto-tune and this and that. Who cares, you know? It's like if, if the music touches you, that's all that, all that matters, you know? And so I think, uh, I don't think there's anything missing from music. Uh, no, I think there was more missing from music back then. Okay. That's an interesting take of it. Do you think it's harder for an artist to get into the music scene now versus back then? Well, it's very different, the music scene now, than it was back then, because back then the holy grail was to be kind of signed to a label and to and have that kind of uh, backup. But, uh, I mean, it's very difficult for anyone to get into the music scene. I mean, the only way to get into it is to, first of all, be determined to do it, is to have the will to, to do whatever it takes. You know, are you prepared to do whatever it takes to, to make it work? And that just means just never giving up. You know, so... It's very easy to say that where I'm sitting now, but uh, it actually that's what happened for me, and that could happen for anyone else. And the thing is, just to, it's very difficult of the business. You know, there's a combination of hard work, 
perseverance and luck, you know. And luck really comes to you by, by hard work. The harder you work, the luckier you get, you know. That I do agree with. I can't argue. So when you were taking courses at Berkeley, because, you know, you're one of the famous alumni they list on it, do you think that actually benefited you more? Or do you still recommend a college scene to a person that is proficient in an instrument going into the music world? Yeah, it helped me because it taught me kind of the language of music. It's like, it's a language. And it's like, you learn, you need to, it's like if you want to learn French or Italian, you need to study it. You can't, I mean, but actually the, the best way to learn French or Italian is just to throw yourself into Italy or France, you know, and just, and of course you will learn it that way. But it's also good to have a kind of a formal structured education in music. And I think, what they teach you in music college is is really uh, is how to speak the language and how to uh, formulate uh, sentences and chords are like adjectives, you know, like and rhythms and it's good to understand what you're listening to. So if you listen to the so for instance, what I've learned from music college is if I listen to something on the radio, I can hear what's happening. I see, I can hear how it's constructed. What is this chord? What's the relationship between this chord and that chord? I can I can understand it. So that means if I go into a musical situation, I, I kind of know the the rudiments of it. And but that's all it is really. It's just a teaching you the language. What you say with the language is a whole other thing. They're not going to teach you how to be creative. I don't think. But they can teach you what the rudiments of the language are of harmony and rhythm. Okay. And when you first left the music world and you actually went into the professional touring, gigging, studio world, what was one of the first things that actually hit you by surprise? Or was there anything? Oh, I'm not really. I mean, I, I was kind of prepared for it. I, I kind of got myself mentally prepared for it. What was the first thing that hit me by surprise is, I don't know. I mean, uh, everything's been a surprise, really. I mean, it's all one big surprise. Um I think the the one of the things that hit me by surprise is that it's it's usually the simplest option that is the best, not the most complex or intelligent or you know elaborate option of a chord sequence or of a an idea. It's usually the simplest ideas win, and that kind of took me by surprise, and it still does surprise me how. The simplest option is always the best. And do you mean that as a rhythmic guitarist or just in general, everything? I mean that in general with okay. music, You're like with a simple chord idea or a, or a you know, the, it's like, for instance, I, I played a, a song with uh, Phil Collins, um, Another Day in Paradise. I played guitar on that track. And I remember when I was in the studio with him, just kind of, working my way through this tune. I was just warming up, just getting tuning my guitar. And I just I just came up with a little arpeggio. And they and the producer and Phil Connor said, Yeah, that's it. And I was thinking, Are you guys kidding? I haven't even started yet. You wait, you know, I'm gonna come up with something great. You just wait. But then they said, But we like that. And I was literally just uh warming up and just coming up with a super simple 
arpeggio in E minor and A minor. It's just like it was no big deal. And my next door neighbor could have played it, you know, and it was easy. But they said, we like that. And that taught me a huge, huge lesson. And that taught me that your instinct, your first instinct with something is usually the truthful and best way to, to go. So can you get in touch with your instinct and turn that into uh, music? That's really one of the hugest tips I can give anyone. Since you brought up, you brought up Mr. Collins, uh, Nathan East came on before. I'm a huge fan. I kind of got starstruck on that one. He was, yeah. when I listened to the interview, like the third time, I fully understood what he was saying when I asked him those questions. He was like, half it is just me being simple and feeling what the main person wants. Exactly. Well, Nathan knows what he's talking about. I've met him a couple of times. I'm a huge, huge admirer of his work. And uh, he knows he knows what it is. And you know, it's interesting because at that level, at the highest level, that's usually how it is. Everything's easy. Because, <laughs> first of all, mostly because, first of all, is because you're dealing with an artist who's established. And the reason they're established is because they do have great ideas. And, and they're usually very, they, they, they touch people. And so that's how it is with the musicians. We go in, we hear like two chords or like a, a an idea, and it kind of uh, what our roles are just kind of dictate them dictate themselves. It's no big deal, and there's no ego. You know what I mean? Working at that level, nobody's got any ego problem or anything. It's just like, hey, it's all chilled, man. You know, and it's easy. And so Nathan is 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 exactly right. You know, it's like when you work with. Phil, or with all the people he's worked with, I'm sure that he he would say that it's always been a very uh, smooth experience and no no stress, you know. Whereas at, when you work with lesser established artists who are still kind of trying to find their identity and their way, your kind of your job is to try to help them find their way, <clears throat> like with just by you know guiding them towards the the light of whatever the music is, you know. But with people who are like staying and Phil Collins and other people I've worked with, it's like it's already there, mate. All you got to do is just fucking play, you know, and uh, and just take it easy and don't play anything, you know, like that's going to uh, draw attention to you. Nobody wants to really hear you. They want to hear the song. It's not about you. Okay. Well, I'm just curious. How did you get the gig with Phil Collins? <laughs> Well, that's just by way of, um, uh, during the 80s, <clears throat> I was doing a lot of session work in London with medium kind of known artists. And, you know, I was a budding session guitar player in London. I was doing a lot of calls. Um, and it just culminated in working with uh, Hugh Padgham, who's Phil Collins' producer. I was working with a girl called Julia Fordham. Um, he was producing her, and he liked the way I played. And he was about to start working on the But Seriously album with Phil Collins. And I ended up, he, and he said, you know, you sound great. You know, we just got on really well. And he said, come down to uh, to Surrey in the in the south of England and, and play on Phil album. And I went, are you kidding me? And I went, yeah, damn, you know, of course I'll be, th I'll be there. <clears throat> so I showed up and, and it worked, you know, it, it was really cool. I, I played on six tracks on that album. And, and then that album and that particularly another day in paradise kind of opened the door to everything else you know it's a uh, suddenly I, I had a license uh, the key to the kingdom you know 
and then the phone didn't stop ringing. And I was I suddenly became the new guy in town. But actually, I wasn't the new guy at all. I'd already been doing it for 10 years. It's just that nobody knew me. But suddenly everybody knew me. And so then the floodgates opened and I, I started working with everyone. And then that ended up with staying. And, you know, when you play on a big record, the people people notice you. You know what I mean? Yes. 10 years become an overnight sensation. <laughs> Okay, uh, may I ask about Sting? How did you get that? So you, Phil Collins opened the door to that? Yeah, yeah, okay. very much so, because uh, after the Phil thing, the, you know, uh, that worked really well, and then Sting happened to be looking for a guitar player to start a new band. And his producer was also Hugh Padgham. And so Sting asked Hugh, who's the guitar, who do you think I should uh, try out for this band? And Hugh didn't hesitate. He said, try Dominic Miller. You know, oh. uh, he's your guy. So I flew to New York from London, and we had a jam at SIR Studios, for, and the jam was like for three or four hours. And uh, and it went really well. And that was 33 years ago, and I'm still doing the gig. You know, can, can you believe that? You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's insane. And I still can't believe it. I'm still, like, in shock, but happily so. And... But I've evolved as a musician through his music. I've done about mm -hmm. over 2,000 shows with him, and I've done nine or ten albums with him, and I've written many songs with him too, you know? And yes. it's, it's incredible, an incredible journey. Uh, the second album you did with him, uh, the, the Ten Summiters? Yes. One of my favorite tracks of all times on that. And you have an amazing acoustic version of it, Fields of Gold. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. And that's one reason why when you release your latest album, everyone make sure you listen to that. <laughs> Vagabond. I love it. It's like literally my type of easy listening. I know that. Oh, really? Yes. So from front to, I had no problem listening to that. So when you did your own solo record, I mean, your own solo guitar riffs, and then you brought your band in it, I was just having the time of my life. <laughs> oh, so cool, man. I'm so happy to hear that. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I like to surround myself with really good musicians, you know, that's one of the things I learned from Sting, actually, and from all you know, Phil Collins and everybody else. You know, it's just if you get a good group of musicians who are selfless and who have great instinct, then you can't really go wrong. As long as you have a good narrative, a good instrumental narrative or a song, but in my case, it's instrumental music. So if you have to have a story to tell to make it easy for them to interpret. Like I was saying with the songs that I play on, the, the really good songs are very easy to play on. And so I'm, I, I, if I'm proud of anything with the new album, it's that I got the right lineup. Uh, I hope you have another album in the works after this, at least for people like me. And going back into that, instrumentals, because especially the radio nowadays and the people that I know that are really counter-related the streamings and these service streaming services instrumentals aren't really the top tier of things so how do you stay relevant in the, today's world doing instrumentals well i mean uh it's a kind of a it's kind of the polar opposite of what i do in my day job my day job is to be touring and recording with uh, you know a major artist around the world in a in in a big kind of setting and so i like to do like a 180 to do the opposite of that and uh, 
So I have, uh, I do instrumental albums and I have a band and I go out on the road for about two months a year. And it's not the same level of success, but it's, it's, in, it's hard to explain what a, how gratifying it is to play in a club, in a jazz club or in a small theater with your mates and jam in front of an audience that have come to see you. So to me, it's mega to, to play uh, instrumental music. Of course, it's not the same level of success as, as, uh, as you say, as pop or rock or mainstream. But in terms of uh, gratification as a musician, it's, it's on the same level, if not higher. So I could play in a, in a football stadium with Sting in South America with, in, in front of 85,000 people or play in a, in a jazz club in, in Amsterdam in front of 200 people. They both have the same value to me, both those shows. And in a way, the, the playing in front of 200 is, is more intense and more powerful because the people are right there. And I love it. You know, that, uh, of course, instrumental music's never going to be mainstream because there aren't any lyrics. But some people around the world really identify with instrumental music, which is what classical music is, mostly. So people do listen to Bach and Beethoven and Mozart because it touches their souls. It touches you. And instrumental music is like that, too, like with Keith Jarrett's piano playing or like, uh, you know, I mean, Miles Davis. I mean, come on, you know, like uh, it really touches people, but not at the same level of success in a mainstream capacity. So, you know, I'm cool with, with uh, both disciplines of my job. And I think that there, it's very necessary to do both because they both feed from each other. I can't go to Sting's table just doing his own, just with his stuff. I, I like to come and show him stuff mm -hmm. from the experience that I've had from doing my gig. And by the same token, I like to do my gig with my little band with the experience that I've had with Sting and bring those principles into that uh, arena. Okay. You know what I mean? No, I get you. I'm just curious about one other thing on that album because you were hitting like Flamenco style, guitar style at one point with, you know, are you proficient in that style also? I'm not proficient in any style. I'm like an actor, you know, I just, <laughs> I'm like faking it, you know, I, have one style that I really, really like. You know, I'm not a jazz guitarist. I'm not a rock guitarist. I'm not a funk guitar. I'm just a bit of everything because that's what I do. Is I, I like to just play each tune that I write is almost like a scene in a play, and so I just need to create the characters to be able to pull that off. So I need actors, and and I need to be one of those actors that to fulfill that role. And so if it's something funky or bossa nova or jazz, it's not nothing that I play is, is truly authentic. You know, you know, if I want to hear jazz guitar, I listen to uh, George Benson, you know, who also plays incredible uh, blues yeah. and funk. But or I might if, if I want to hear rock, I'll listen to somebody else. But these are very versatile musicians that I'm talking about, you know. I don't think that George Benson would call himself a jazz guitarist. He would call himself a guitarist and a songwriter. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, he did have a great crossover career, so I can't knock the man on yeah. that. So do you write your music 
while you're on tour with like the major artists or is it just something that happens when you have free time? I just, no, I, I like to be off the road and just to be in the comfort of my, you know, like uh, some more silence and off the rat race of, you know, like running around from hotels and airports. That's not a good environment for me to write music and in a hotel room. It's not the most ideal, but sometimes I do because I have to, to fulfill a, a deadline or to meet a deadline. Mm -hmm. So I write music usually when I have time off, I dedicate the time just to do that. And did you record this album in one day? Or was it like on multiple sessions? No, it was in two days. <laughs> oh. It was recorded in two days and mixed in one day. You know, it's it's like a photograph of where we were at that time. And there's no edits, no fixing, no nothing. Just a couple of little little overdubs here and there. But it's really was just in and out. Uh, I think that's the best way to do it, really. Because if you spend too much time on it and become too perfectionist, then you end up with something that's not really authentic. What you end up with is something like a selfie. I don't want to present a selfie to the world. I want to present like a, a really truthful portrait of where I am musically with the, with all the, you know, imperfections and misarticulations and all that. That's what speaks to me when I hear, when I hear a good uh, Miles Davis record or, you know, it, the, it's the inconsistencies and the slight imperfections in tonality that really speak to me because they weren't, you know, all kind of messed up about perfection. Those guys, they were messed. What they cared about was telling the truth. And that's what you can do in a two day recording session is just tell it how it is. And, and the public respond to that. They can tell when you're being honest because they might not know about music, but they do know about authenticity. I, like I said, I can't really say much after that. that. I agree with you. I believe the best sessions come from when you hit it all in a day or two. Yeah. So, like I said, I need more of that stuff from you personally. And <laughs> I'm definitely looking forward towards the next one. <laughs> okay, so just a few other stuff that I need to know. So, since you were a major touring artist, how did COVID actually affect you? It was kind of a gift in a way, because uh, it was the first time that I got to spend some time with my family, you know, and to get to, and my friends, you know, and just to sort of uh, just stop. It was like press pause on my career. And it was actually, most of the musicians I know, it was a gift for them because they just, they managed to get off the road and and just to sort of reappraise where they were and everything. Because we didn't know what was going to happen with COVID. I mean, everyone, there was a bit of a panic, but it was a great gift for me because I actually managed to just sort of see who we are to each other with my family. And and also I got a chance to write music in a different way and just to chill, just to stop moving. So it was, a, I saw it as a gift personally uh, in terms of like spending time with my family. Okay. And what do you think of the state of jazz right now? I know you used to play with Chris. Chris is another amazing talent. Chris Bode. Yes. Oh, yeah. I think jazz, I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult word, jazz. I mean, what is jazz? Uh, jazz is really instrumental music. I mean, you know, there's this two sides of jazz. There's the conservative type of jazz, which is like it must be this way or no way at all, That which is kind of defeats the whole purpose of what jazz really is, which is improvised music. The state of jazz, I think, is really very healthy. There's some amazing players out there at the moment, incredible players. But what I hear with the the new breed of 
virtuosos is that they're drawing from jazz from the 70s and 80s, mostly, that type of virtuosity. It's kind of a, they've got it down, man. They've got it down than we ever had it. You know what I mean? And it's uh, like you look at the whole Snarky Puppy and Jacob Collier generation of musicians, which is just awe-inspiring. But what are they actually saying? Uh, see, if I, I could listen to Weather Report, Joe Zawin will just play a, a very simple phrase on the keyboard, and that will speak to me probably much more than a genius solo by Corey Henry. You know what I mean? Yes. That's probably because I'm older and I identify with that through my youth because I listened to that in my younger years. But now Corey Henry and all these amazing musicians who I totally admire are doing it another way. And I don't really understand it. It's, it's much more intellectual jazz now than it was before where it was just simpler. It's, 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 it wasn't so much about virtuosity before. It was more to do with tone and, and, and like... Uh, but I think jazz is great at the moment, and I'm 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 really happy to see so many great players coming up, and like all the guys from Snarky Puppy, and and you know what Jacob Collier has offered to the world is incredible. He's offering people with all these choices with harmony, and it's just incredible. So I think it's very healthy. Okay. And where do you think jazz will be in ten years? Do you actually think it will be bigger? Do you think it'll be smaller? I think it'll be bigger. You know, I mean, of course it will be. You know, I mean, it, it's an evolving uh, art form. But what is jazz? You know, it's like you, you could say, what is heavy metal? You know, because if you listen to original heavy metal, it would be like Black Sabbath. But that, that changed into this very sophisticated Swedish, Norwegian type, uh, very, very math metal. You yes, Gorin and yes. <laughs> wow. I listen to that. I go, wow, that is so fucking cool, man. You know, but. Does it speak to me the way that uh, Black Sabbath did? It's the same with jazz. I listened to Kind of Blue. I haven't heard a better jazz album than that since I heard that. If yeah. I just, yeah. John <laughs> just listen to John Coltrane. Just play a fucking melody. You know, there's, there's no... And, and maybe uh, an improvised uh, passage. That for me is jazz. But to hear like full-on virtuosity all the time wears me out but people can't help it you know i think the most important thing in jazz is is tunes the best jazz musicians are the ones who listen to songs who listen who are song listen to songwriters because that's what kind of blue is it's a songbook you know it's a songbook every song speaks to me it it feels like it has a narrative every tune has a narrative because they're, they're songs and there are no lyrics, but does it talk to you? Yes, I think it does. And probably a lot of your your followers will, will identify with that. But you, where is jazz? Where will it be in 10 years? I hope that it will still be true to, to just telling stories instead of listen to me. Oh, the whole listen to me and jazz is a different problem. <laughs> I think you know that. Yeah. They go to jam sessions and I had, I guess, a few weeks on before. He was saying like he's a big fan of studying the standard and then coming to the jam session and playing it in like, let's just say the song is C. 
he then all of a sudden he wanted to play it in like D flat. And I'm like, guy, <laughs> I get it, but you're throwing yeah. everybody off just to prove how better you are. Yeah, that's strange. Okay, yeah, but whatever. <laughs> what is something that you believe people misunderstand about your glorious life of living on the road and touring? A lot of people, I mean, I, one of the things that a lot of people say is that, you know, oh, God, you're so lucky to be doing that. You're so lucky this and, you know, you know, your career is great. And and what people don't understand is that it, the amount of dedication it takes to, to do it at this level is, is pretty awesome. You know, it's so I could say to you, to the person who says to me, you're lucky, I'd love to be doing what you're doing. So I'll say to that guy or girl. Okay, let me ask you this. Look at your house, your friends, your wife, your dogs, your neighbor, your your uh, drinking partners. Just for a second, take all of that away and tell me if you really want to do this. Is this something that 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 you that you that you're up for? That's what people don't get. And they they might go, "Well, yeah, but I'd like to sort of half do what you do, but, you know, uh, but still hang on to, you know, maybe not travel so much. And I'm going, well, then this is not for you. You have to, it's all all or nothing. Doing what we do is almost like somebody gave you a one-way ticket to an unknown destination. Would you take that ticket? Then come and talk to me. So let, leave everything behind and just take that one-way ticket. And uh, then you'll see. That's what people don't understand. This is the thing that surprised me the most. That's what surprises me about some people is they don't understand the level of dedication it takes to arrive at a certain point in your career. Although there's some people who are very lucky and it happens to them very quickly because of circumstance or whatever. But usually those people have trouble sustaining that kind of success. And then they, it kind of goes to shit. Unless they're, they're grateful. You don't lose your gratitude. If, you, if you're in a good situa working situation, you know, that's really, you've you got to stay grateful for it. And I am, you know, and, and every day that I wake up, I'm so grateful to be in, first of all, to be a musician. And secondly, to be working with such amazing people. But I do miss my wife and my kids and my dogs. But that's what I've given up to do this. That was deep. Okay. And is it, I don't know how it is for you, but is it one of those things where you literally wake up and you're in a completely different city? Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time, you know. Different country? Like, yeah, but you know, the, the weird thing is, is that whenever I wake up in a different city, I always know where I am. Okay, because I know because, some people who wake up and it's just like... No, no, because <laughs> I'll tell you what, because it's I've traveled so much and I'm so conditioned to this life. My home is the road. kind of. I'm a nomad kind of thing. Wow. So, so <laughs> I know what hotel I'm in. I know what city I'm in. I know where the elevator is. You know, I, I instinctively know that. But I'll tell you what, though. Sometimes when I go home after a long spell, three months on the road, and I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm at home, I don't know where I am because I'm somewhere that I'm not familiar with. And that's home. Get your head around that. 
you know, I think, hang on, I've got to orientate myself. Hang on, where am I? Was, uh, oh shit, I'm at home. And there's a body next to me. <laughs> That's my wife. <laughs> oh my God. It's the missus. Fair, fair, fair. Okay. <laughs> so she signed up expecting to know you're going to be gone all this time and everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, she, yeah, I mean, that's what she signed up for and, and, and I signed up for. That's, yeah, amazing in its own way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what is your dream project, though? I don't. I, I don't really have a dream project. My dream project is really what I'm doing. is It's just to constantly improve. That's all I want to do. Is just keep improving and keep growing, and just just keep moving. I don't have a a single ambition. I've fulfilled a lot of my ambitions. I don't. You know, there's a few artists that I would like to work with, but it's that's just a detail. You know. Uh, and to jam with, of course, there's a few people I'd like to play with, but it's it's mu it's much more surreal than that. I mean, my my dream job, my my dream ambition right now is just to keep going and to keep improving. And as soon as I, the the day that I stop improving, is probably the day that I need to start chilling. No, okay, can't argue that part. Also, so. Will you be nice and tell me a level 42 or a sting story? <laughs> I mean, I've got a lot of stories. I mean, level 42, great. I mean, Mark King and Mike Lind Mike Lindup is the guy I'm closest to, um, the keyboard player. No, I don't have any, any funny stories or anything like that. I mean, they're just great musicians. Mark is an incredible bass player. I mean, I don't think anyone has ever played like that. You know? But the way that he played... Because I grew up, uh, part of my uh, growing up was in America, and I, I remember what was happening in the late 70s with with funk, and particularly the Brothers Johnson. And I think that, uh, you know, and, and the, way that, yeah. the way that Clark was playing in the early days, you know, his, the first two solo albums that Stanley Clark did, uh, that, for me, was what real, you know, that was the start. I mean, of course... There's, there are other bands, but the Brothers Johnson, I think, must have been a huge influence on Mark, the way that Mark plays. But what Mark did is he repackaged what Stanley does and what, uh, uh, I can't remember what his, is it Lewis Johnson, what he played on the bass, God bless him? I believe, yes. Um, I think that must have been a huge influence on his playing. But what he did is he kind of reinvented that way of playing and made it much more... Uh, a, a European stuff, you know, because they made it huge in Europe. And it, frankly, it had never really happened in Europe until the mid-80s. You know, it, it's something that arrived in the mid-80s, where in, in America it was happening in the mid-70s. You know? With bands like... Uh, but but uh, Johnson and BT Express. Uh, you know, but that was more arrangement and songwriting, Earth, Wind & Fire. But, but the Brothers Johnson were killing bands. Okay, actually, I need to ask, from Argentina to Middle America to London, any of those really had the biggest culture shock on you? Yeah, I mean, it's all a culture shock, really. But, I mean, going to America the first time was, was pretty much a, 
a huge culture shock. But I was 11 years old when I moved to Wisconsin. And it was a great place to be for a young boy. You know, I thought, wow, this is America. So whenever I think of America, I usually think of the Midwest. You know, Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis. Those are the places that, I, that, that mean something. That I think, this is America. And uh, it was wow. I mean, this, you know, this is a long time ago. So it's the, the real American dream. You know, I was living in it. And the kind of music that was happening around there, you know, a long time ago, it was pretty spectacular. And I was seduced by it completely. That's the reason I'm a musician is because of a lot of American music. Like the Brothers Johnson, you know, like, and, you know, before that too, you know, Stevie Wonder. My favorite American musician is, is probably um, Stevie Wonder, pretty much. I mean, everything he did was like perfect. Yeah. <laughs> just Especially how, he, how he evolved from the late 60s up until, let's just say, the late 80s, his style, how it changed in that 20, 30 years. Yeah. I mean, he had his sweet spot, which was between sort of 72 and 82. Yeah. That's when everything was just, everything was just... That's when Songs of Keys of Life and All I Do yeah. came out and, yeah. Inner Visions, uh, Talking Book, mm -hmm. you know, it's unbelievable. Okay. And when you moved from the States to London, was there any big difference to you? Yeah, I mean, of course, but London's a whole different thing. I moved to London around the time that punk was just finishing. Okay. And, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it was quite, that was a culture shock. I had to re—I had to reinvent myself from scratch, you know, because I missed the whole beginning of that. So I just got to London, and punk scene had just been and gone in two years, and and there, it left quite a an impressionable slipstream, you know, that I kind of jumped on, and I kind of got into that, the rock and and harder edged rock scene and punk scene, which has had an influence on me. So that was a huge culture shock, and I feel very fortunate to have been exposed to that in London, which has helped me a lot to interpret rock music in an English way. And which artists stood out to most to you during that time? Well, in I mean, uh, many uh, in the, eight, the late 70s, early 80s, I mean, you know, the Dire Straits were great. I mean, uh, of course, uh, the police were a really good band, but I liked bands like Blondie. Um, uh, there was a lot of good jazz around that time, like Weather Report were in their prime. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, Pat Metheny was doing, you know, and the jazz scene was really, really cool in the late 80s. You know, I mean, the Weather Report album, Domino Theory, was, was a huge album then. And uh, after Jaco Pastorius, you know, the, the new band. And, you know, just a lot of great bands. Okay. Well, I'm just curious about one more thing. I know yeah. I said that like seven times already. <laughs> What is the best compliment you ever got? Ah, that's a really good question. Do you know what it is? Oh. I can tell you that. The best compliment I ever got, and the, the time that I felt that, like I really made it mm -hmm. as a musician, was when somebody came up to me after a gig and he said, I really like your sound. That's it. That's it? Yeah. By a normal fan? That's it. Okay. Yeah, he was a musician. <laughs> oh, okay. It wasn't like, it's such a simple thing to say, but for, for, to somebody, for somebody to give me that, 
to say that I have a sound at all. I like your sound. It was just like a huge gift. And I've, I've never forgotten that. And that was the time that I felt like, wow, I really am saying something. Because he, he distinguished me from anyone else. He didn't say, I like that song that you played there, or I like that lick, or I like that chord, or I like this, or I like these chord changes, or that whatever. He just said, I like your sound. So that's the best compliment I ever got. Okay. And I'll leave you there with that, sir, because I know you're busy. <laughs> Could you please tell people your website, where to find this album? Okay. And yeah, well, I'm, I'm uh, DominicMiller.com. I have a at Dominic Miller um, accounts. And I don't have a Twitter handle anymore. I, I, I left Twitter for some reason because I got a few times, you know, and I got kind of tired with it. So, and it's more like, you know, it's, it's, if you're into politics, that's good. But I'm not really into politics anymore. I'm tired of that shit, too. So, uh, <laughs> but, you know, you can find me, you know, um, come to a gig, you know. Oh, no, some- if you're in New York and you play, especially if you're playing this album in this style with your quartet, yeah. I'm definitely going to f- find my way there. So- oh, man. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for joining us and everyone. You- yeah, what's up? Thank you very much. <laughs> everyone, the end of from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. Take care. Yes, sir. Genius. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>